very much, Hassan. Welcome to you all. Welcome to the Warden, and thank you for attending. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you all here. Um, I would like just to say a word or two about the new program for those who don't know about it, and then to introduce our speakers. Um, new program is called The Political Economy of Financial Markets. And when an American academic, Alan Drazen at Maryland, was asked, what is political economy? Is that just an old-fashioned Oxford kind of word, an old-fashioned historical Scottish term for economics? He said, no, no. Economics is about optimizing, and political economy is why people don't optimize. <laughs> and one more natural topic than financial markets. Another way of saying that more simply is it's to do with the institutional and political framework in which financial markets develop and how they interact. And um, to give you an idea, really, we have three streams of research that have already started, and the members of those research groups are here tonight. These research groups bring together people in academia, people in the public sector, and people who work in financial markets. One is on financial integration in Europe. Somebody said, if this is multidisciplinary, does that mean you're looking for archaeologists to look into financial integration in Europe? And the answer is no, of course, this is a forward-looking program. Um, the second is about a familiar topic to people who work on regulation, that's regulatory capture, indeed policy capture. And it was David Vines who pointed out to me, people think of the in industries capturing regulators, but actually ideology also captures regulators, and ideology captures policymakers in issues like monetary policy. So this question of the capture of policy by different interests and by changing economic circumstances, big literature in the 70s and 80s, a little bit neglected recently, but it seems vaguely, vaguely relevant to the financial crisis we've just lived through. The third is slightly more macro and nerdish, and that is you have these policy frameworks like inflation targeting fiscal targets. And they were meant to insulate policy from politicians and their short-term biases and goals. And yet, in fact, when the private sector developed very big imbalances, credit booms, uh, policymakers became kind of trapped in these In my view, they became trapped in these regimes and failed to respond to the instability that was developing. So what's the lesson we draw from that? How do we protect policymakers from political goals and yet make them free to have discretion when they're faced with aberrations in the private sector? Um, the way we're conducting the program, one is through research groups that I mentioned, and the other will be a series of lectures during the rest of the academic year. There'll be three or four special lectures. And then in the, in the autumn, in the Michaelmas term, every Monday evening at 5 o'clock, there'll be a seminar of the kind the European Studies Centre is very familiar with, with its core seminar, or CSOCs, with its regular seminars. So every evening at 5 o'clock this term next year, on Monday evenings, we'll be having speakers, but from different disciplines, looking at the role of the financial sector in the economy, not just from a discipline of economics, but also from disciplines of politics, sociology, history, and so forth. That's enough of the new program. Now, I, what I have to do now is to introduce our two speakers. I'm really grateful for you here. I'm, I'm grateful also um, to, uh, to Jane Kaplan, who introduced me to Patricia and said you should read her book on the Great Depression in Europe. Um, because many people have written about the Great Depression and policy sources in the United States, but fairly few people have written exclusively focusing on Europe. And at the time, I was reading a draft of a book that's coming out, I guess in February, is it, David? Uh, a book written by David Vines and Peter Temin at MIT, published by Princeton, which has had um, various titles, but I think the latest one is The Leaderless Economy. Um, 
why the world, it's talking about why the world fell apart and how David Vines and Peter Temin would put it together again. Is that approximately? It's a bit shorter than that. It's a slightly shorter title. It's an American title. Oxford titles are longer. Um, so I read these two books in parallel, and what I realized with horror was that um, Patricia's was written around, I guess, about 2000. And when I read it, this account of the 19, I was thinking about the 30s, it was the account of the 20s that horrified me, and I thought, there are a bunch of themes. And when we had lunch together, we talked about it, and I said, we should really do a joint seminar to look at this. What a good way to kick off. Nice optimistic way of kicking off a, a series of seminars on financial markets. Uh, I hardly need to say it to most of you, but Patricia is Professor of International History and a Fellow of Jesus College. Um, she studied at King's College London and then was, I think, reader um, in modern history at Keele. Came here in about 2003 after writing that book. And is a research director of modern European Historical Research History Research Center and the editor of Contemporary European History, the journal. And she's been taking a year of sabbatical, other than preparing for this evening, when she is working on the League of Nations and its economic committees and its institutional role, which is a riveting topic on which she's published some things earlier. She will speak first, and this will be podcast, so on the whole it would be better if we didn't have questions during her talk, because otherwise they have to edit them out, because none, very few of you have signed consent forms allowing yourselves to be podcast. Uh, but then we'll have a break, and you can uh, ask Patricia all those questions you wanted to do from a historical perspective, let you have let your hair down for a few minutes. Then on will come the podcast again for David Vine's talk. David, as most of you know, is Professor of Economics and a Fellow of Balliol College. He's also Adjunct Professor um, at the Australian National University and a Research Fellow in CEPR. Um, initially educated in Melbourne, and then he came to Cambridge and studied under and worked with James Mead, who was, what would one say, a disciple of Keynes, a deep admirer of Keynes. And some of David's work in this book is some really I think new work on Keynes at the time of the Macmillan Committee when we always thought the audience was confused, but David discovered at the time Keynes was confused. It's probably a short more, summary. More to come. And before coming to Oxford, he was the Adam Smith Professor of Political Economy, indeed, in Glasgow, I think. Is that right? And um, Proper Scottish term. Okay, I'm a Scot by origin, so I can live with this. Let's then begin, no more ado, um, and Patricia, you will give a lecture, I think, and David will have a PowerPoint to show us some pictures, and I'm going to give you... Oh, yes, I've uh, succumbed to the bug fest, that is eighth week in Oxford. Let me give you that. So, I think I might need this. I've never spoken right. in here with this before, I've normally just shouted. <laughs> but, um, right. I think that's not very kind on the audience. Okay. <clears throat> So I, I'm sort of speaking to the title um, that Max provided us with, addressing the crisis in Europe and the global economy lessons from the 1920s and 30s. But I should begin by saying that historians, unlike economists, are always very nervous about lessons. Um, and our, our, our natural um, impulse, and there are people in this room that know more about this as a kind of function of policy, is to want to say how the present differs from the past rather than what makes it similar to the present, uh, or to try and think about the past and make connections and draw out themes that are not so prominent in contemporary analogies. And that's um, what I'm going to try and do in five different ways um, in the 30 or so minutes that um, I have allocated to me. 
by Max. Um, so the first, or the first of the five themes is really that I want to say just a little bit about the chronology that we've been provided with, so the 20s and 30s, and why the 20s and 30s, and whether uh, we need to stretch that a little bit. Uh, then something about the relationship between politics and economics, and then economics and national security as a way of thinking about ideology. So I want to, and obviously in the questions we can think about ideology more, because uh, it's a key, a key connection, but I wanted to sort of approach it from a, a perhaps less typical angle. Uh, and then say something about uh, the third theme, austerity, international organizations, um, or international oversight and colonialism with regard to the case of Austria in the early 1920s, which I've been doing a bit of work on recently. Uh, and fourthly, the importance and character of multilateral cooperation, as I know that uh, David is going to say a little bit about, may do, judging from the book title, on uh, hegemonic stability and the role of, of the leader, or the world's banker, in, um, in promoting economic financial stability in the interwar period. And then finally, how the origins of, of current present-day organisations of international financial and economic cooperation, so the European uh, Union, from the EEC to me, <laughs> the IMF at the World Bank, um, have their origins and are shaped out of some of the, the issues that I'll be talking about um, in the paper. That's something I've been working on, as Max alluded to, for a while in the, by studying the economic and financial organisation of the League of Nations. Oh, I can't. <laughs> I've made the mistake of standing up and now my reading glasses won't work, so I'm going to just uh, try and peer down and make sense of my text, or I might hold this up, that might work. So in 19, February 1922, the Austrian ministers, Dr. Ferdinand Grimm and Herr Georg Frankenstein, two particularly well-named uh, ministers, announced to their <laughs> League of Nations that uh, their fellow citizens faced acute shortages of food, fuel and jobs, and that state bankruptcy was imminent. Theirs was not an isolated horror story. That year, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Poland were also in the grip of financial meltdown. Austria's plight in 1922 is a reminder that the Great Depression, lay, the origins of the Great Depression lay not in the Wall Street crash, but in the First World War. In the aftermath of the war, most governments, whether old or newly established, faced testing questions at home as to the result of promises made by those who governed between 1915 and 1918. And those promises were made in order, to, of course, to sustain a total war effort, as did political parties who had sought public support in elections that were widespread at the end of the war. National politics in 1918-1919 frequently turned on the issue of rights, so this is a question about how to put expect political expectations into an economic framework. And these rights included the right to vote independently of land ownership, especially for women, of course, the right to greater representation by minority groups and colonialized peoples, and the right to improved social conditions, notably in the field of employment, uh, housing, and social protection. So society's expectations of the state had changed but economic policy had not. When the war ended, statesmen encouraged and supported by central banks and big business pulled back on the assumption that market forces would heal war-battered economies. So there's a withdrawal of the state from economic management for a variety of reasons, really, that I've kind of pulled together. But the problems of such an approach were immediately laid bare by the destructive impact of rapidly rising levels of inflation unleashed by the war and exacerbated by the challenges of reconstruction without foreign aid. So there's a question also about 
needing support where the support should come from. And I mean, it's familiar, it's, you know, I'm sure it's familiar to all of you, a potent combination of financial, political and social pressures culminated in episodes of acute hyperinflation that devastated the successor republics of the central powers, notably those of Austria, Hungary, Germany and Poland. Austria descended into hyperinflation as early as October 1921, with a monthly inflation rate of about 46% and unemployment running at over 33%. Hungary inflation grew at around 33% a month in 1923 and of course the, the famous example is the Weimar Republic in, the, uh, in 1923 where prices doubled every two days. But even in the comparatively stable setting of post-war Britain, inflation was about 16% in 1920. So this impact of inflation had a profound impact around the world and of course it's a, it's a historiography or a kind of historical narrative that comes up a lot in terms of trying to understand why Germany behaves today. I've tried to sort of broaden our memory of which other states were affected by it um, and why they perhaps don't remember the, the inflation in, in, in those sorts of ways. Governments in the 1920s now made currency stability the primary goal of their efforts uh, and that of course centred on resurrecting the international gold standard um, for those of you that are sort of unfamiliar with this history, I sort of suspect that this part of the room may <laughs> be more familiar with it. Um, uh, a fixed exchange rate mechanism that was widely believed to have facilitated the great expansion of the international economy in the 19th century. Between 1924 and 1929, 45 countries joined the gold standard. Most of the British Empire and the Commonwealth joined in 1926. I think it's sometimes forgotten just quite the number of countries that joined and the speed with which that happened after 1924. But Austria was the first to go back. The gold standard bound the fates of national economies more closely. It also made Europe more heavily dependent on international lending, and, and it, from the USA particularly, but not only, to make the gold standard work. And of course that lending was conditional on the gold standard being taken up. When American loans dried up after 1929, rather than abandon gold, most states, certainly European states, you may notice in my talk, Britain, sometimes a member of Europe and it's sometimes not. In this case, it's not. <laughs> most states, which is a sort of interwar understanding, most states introduced trade and currency controls. Adherence to the gold standard disseminated deflation, worsened the, the depression and encouraged economic nationalism. I mean, it facilitated it um, because in order to stay on the gold standard, you had, to, you had a number of policy choices, one of which was to close your economy off. These developments combined uh, condemned the world economy until about 1949 to what some contemporary economists called, I love this phrase, a permanent condition of quasi-emergency. And I can't help but feeling that we've been living in a permanent mm. condition of quasi-emergency for uh, quite a few years too. So the first thing I want to say really, this is my first sort of point, is that really these are four deeply troubled decades, not two. It's 1915 to 1949 or even 1950. Mm, mm. And, you know, during this, of course, many, many turned to history to assess how bad things were and what lay ahead. And the risk, and this is where this is a kind of professional caveat here, the risk of, of basing predictions on history alone are considerable. In 1928, President-elect Herbert Hoover, given that in modern times the USA had only known a booming economy, claimed we shall soon see the day when poverty is banished from the face of the earth. Um, so this is sort of, you know, that our, memory, our, our, our memories are spectacularly uh, conditional on the contemporary um, and quite short term. There are important contrasts between the crisis that Europe faces today and that of the interwar period. The Great Depression became so severe in part because governments everywhere increased protectionism, so trade controls, tariff barriers and quotas. Bound by a dense web of multilateral agreements, 
and, and by the history of the interwar period, in fact, one of the most striking differences between then and now, so far, is that trade has not been politicised. You know, there is talk, but as a result, tariffs and quotas are not on the rise. The other major difference, but this is speaking as a historian, the other major difference is that events so far have not triggered political violence on anything like the levels of the 1920s or 30s, though this is certainly not to ignore the very troubling signs of polarisation and nationalism in countries facing the deepest cuts in state spending and economic growth. But these differences should not give rise to any complacency. The absence of widespread political support for extremist political parties is not the best measure of whether the political situation may become as serious as it did in the interwar period. So there's a kind of, the media has a tendency to look for fascists and, and that kind of rhetoric and, and behaviour of the far right. Not saying that we shouldn't look for that, we should, but... On a broader canvas, it's important to remember after 1918 that economic nationalism was not just popular with fascists. Uh, I'm not really talking about communists, I realise, or international socialism in this talk, because that doesn't seem to have a current connection. But, um, but economic nationalism appealed to political leaders and voters across the political spectrum because it protected the home market and because it met a newfound expectation encouraged in the war that the state would facilitate employment. The notion of economic self-sufficiency also connected to wider ideas about the state's role in guaranteeing security that continue to have major implications for global peace and prosperity. So I can't remember what theme this is. Theme number two. Uh, just got a quick check of the time. Um, Yes, so economic instability and national security. It was in 1648 that the Treaty of Westphalia first enshrined that states were responsible for the preservation of security and international peace. It's a seminal moment, of course, in the history of international relations. By the mid-19th century, this principle had, been had become coupled with the notion of territoriality, so it becomes fixed with the idea that the state is also connected to a bounded piece of territory. And this began an obsession with protecting national frontiers. So this is a relatively, I mean, it's a, a historically chartable phenomena. Borders were increasingly fortified in physical terms and accompanied by new and sophisticated bureaucratic practices to control the movement of people within as well as between countries. And of course, I'm looking at Jane Kaplan when I say that because Jane's the great expert on that. States became obsessed with population. It wasn't just the number of people that counted, but their quality. Eugenicist ideas fueled a crude ethno-nationalism which ranked nations and peoples abroad and justified racist and eugenicist policies towards asocials, undesirables and minority groups at home. In the 1920s and 30s, the new science of nutrition was also important and this changed the meaning of hunger. Of course, we think about the hungry 30s. Hunger from a phenomenon denoting just a lack of food to an association with a new term, malnutrition. National security was now understood in relation to the intactness of the human body and food became a weapon of war. And of course this fits into current debates about food security which so far are separated, seem to be separate from the financial crisis, um, but somehow I feel that they're not. As the influential Polish banker and military strategist Ivan Bloch declared in 1899, the future of war is not fighting, but famine, the bankruptcy of nations, and the breakup of the whole of social organisations. 
Ideas of international society exemplified by the League of Nations, which existed between 1920 and 1946. I always feel I have to put the 1946 part because most people think the League of Nations really stopped working about, well, 1920 or at best 1936, but it actually continued throughout the Second World War. The League of Nations sought to combat these trends in an energetic striving for a new type of diplomacy that would replace state interest with a broader view of state's duties. And I think it's always important to think about that, state interest or state's duties. But the League of Nations faced an uphill battle to develop authority uh, on a whole host of questions. And of course, part of the, the key to understanding the travails of the League of Nations lies in its title, is a League of Nations. So the, the principal guiding authority of the League was state sovereignty. So actually, when you're trying to get states to understand their duties, they're busy asserting their rights. So that's not terribly unfamiliar. Uh, but it's especially important in the context of international economics and finance, which wasn't included in the brief of the League of Nations at all to start with. The League wasn't supposed to have any authority in that field, apart from a kind of general point that Wilson articulated uh, in the 14 points about promoting free trade. Um, but the financial crisis, and this is also why I started with Austria, Austria, the financial crisis in Central and Eastern Europe and the campaigning by leading economists, notably Keynes, and the economic consequences of the peace is an important part of that dynamic. So it's, it's not about just about reparations, it's actually about the economics of, of, the, of the peace settlement. Arthur Bigou and Gustav Kassel prompted the League's nation states to be member states to think again. And what became the League's economic and financial organisation, which was at the start just a handful of men, I mean literally four or five people, um, relied upon a transnational arrangement of private agencies, banks, universities and scientific societies to make an impact. Its first groundbreaking act of rescue came in Austria in 1922. And the economic and financial organization led by Arthur Salter and amongst, supported amongst others by a young pair Jacobson and a clutch of officials at the Bank of England devised a multilateral program of private financial and intergovernmental support that brought stability at a price to Austria. This is a, a founding moment in the history actually of the IMF um, because this sort of practice of oversight becomes sort of embodied in what the IMF uh, is institutionally and, and some of the people that went to work for it. Something I'll come back to. This fledgling economic and financial organisations persuaded the governments of Britain, France, Belgium, Italy, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands and Spain. I kind of like putting all these states in because you see the, the good guys are, are in the 21st century who are the, the good guys, sort of, you know, the, the debtors and the creditors shift around. These creditors guaranteed bonds that would be marketed by major Austrian banks in New York and London. The states were all League of Nations members, and although the US administration could not join, because it wasn't a member of the League of Nations, JP Morgan and company were an important supporter and investor behind the scene. In return, the Austrian government offered up its state income from its monopoly on tobacco and customs revenue as collateral. The financial security afforded by these foreign investors was, in this arrangement, was reinforced by a series of extraordinary political guarantees and the stress on this is the political guarantees that for the first time handed financial oversight of a nation state to an intergovernmental organisation. They had in fact attempted to have networks of bankers float bonds in 1921 and 22, but it's only when the financial oversight and the political support comes in that this scheme works. The financial security 
afforded by the foreign investors um, in this arrangement was reinforced, yes. The Geneva Protocol is the kind of the technical term for this, negotiated through the League Council in October 1922, required Austria to establish an independent central bank and restabilize its currency on the international gold standard. I think what I'm doing is I'm blinding myself by standing in front of that light. Uh, League intervention and the measures it insisted the Austrian government take made this restabilization credible. It agreed to a, Austria that is, agreed to a rigorous program of fiscal retrenchment. Food subsidies were cut and state expenditure was slashed. Some 50,000 civil servants lost their jobs and although pension costs of former officials who once administered the empire remained a considerable drain on resources. And this literally involved them taking, Austrian state officials taking their ledgers to League of Nations officials who would look and check the expenditure and sort of you know, cross mm. things out and say, yes, you can spend this, no, you can't spend that, and so on. The international community's commitment and control over the formulation of Austria's path to recovery was reinforced by the appointment of a Commissioner General of Austrian mm. Finances for the League, the former mayor of the Rotterdam, Alfred Rudolf Zimmermann. A powerful personality and a liberal of the classic 19th century variety, the great fabulous moustache, who had a deep antip antipathy to socialism and socialists, which was no accident, though the League tried to pretend they didn't know that he um, had a deep loathing for socialists and socialism. Uh, Zimmermann set up shop in Red Vienna. He collated and analysed intelligence as to Austria's budgetary and monetary performance and sent monthly reports uh, to the Council, which in turn authorised the tranches of financial aid to Austria. For the next two years, Zimmermann ex enjoyed extraordinary powers, determining when and where Tsipel's government spent or cut expenditure. His relations with Austrian politicians became deeply fractious as he became the personification of an unwelcome international interference in the new country's political and social programme. And of course, this was a new republic, um, however much other countries might have tried to present it differently. In immediate financial terms, Zimmermann delivered. Austria was one of the first nations among those which suspended their membership of the gold standard during the First World War to return to it, and by 1924 its budget was back in the black. The League's intervention uh, became a model for the financial rescue of Hungary, Greece and Bulgaria, and it was also used as a, um, a sort of model in the background for the stabilisation of the Weimar Republic, but it wasn't involved because it was too politically contentious and the League didn't have sufficient power. And, and, and actually Britain and the United States tried to keep the League away from the German question. Uh, sorry, I've blinded myself again. Um, uh, but apart from that, there was immediate pain. I mean, obviously, the stabilisation came with increased taxes, cuts in welfare and unemployment provision. Real interest rates went up while the opportunities to secure domestic credit declined. It's not without justification in the eyes of the popular press. The League Commissioner um, of, of Vienna, Zimmermann, took on the appearance of a Governor-General of an occupying colonial power. And what's interesting about this is actually the debate and the use of colonial language around Zimmermann, but also the Commissioner who went into Greece and Bulgaria, is, um, is more mixed than it would be if it were in the 21st century. Um, the, uh, the League uh, the Nic Nicholas Politis, the first Greek delegate to the League Assembly, publicly praised the pa practical knowledge of League officials thanks to their long colonial experience, which is not something you'd get now. Uh, 
I don't, I don't, I'm never quite sure if he's being ironic, so I think there was an element of that there even then. But in contrast to Central and Eastern Europe, in the West, the world's wealthiest powers restabilized their currencies unilaterally and with no reference to the League or really to one another. So this is also a, a marker of the, the fact that poorer countries who had to have financial assistance were forced into coordination and into multilateral coordination and cooperation to some extent. Whereas Britain restabilized sterling in 1925 and France fixed the franc to gold unofficially in 1926 and formally in 1928 without really you know, discussing the rate at which they were restabilizing um, with one another uh, to any great extent. Castle, Gustav Castle issued a series of warnings about this as early as 1920 about the need to coordinate and cooperate that were not heeded. And this national approach created problems that very quickly came home to roost. It left pound sterling overvalued at around 10% and the US dollar and the French franc significantly undervalued. British economic performance, notably the health of its manufacturing sector, was listless on gold. French and American exporters, on the other hand, enjoyed considerable supporters, which reinforced, of course, their commitment to the gold standard and the gold standard order. And it also reshaped and, and reinforced their attitudes to internationalism, which was um, equated with the gold standard um, once the world economy turned sour after 1929. Although instrumental in shaping its creation, as early as 1944, some of the Depression delegation members made criticisms that were to become commonplace about the architecture of international financial relations after 1945. The IMF and the World Bank did not have sufficient financial resources. They were too much of an American show. And they were insufficiently connected and accountable to the humanitarian agenda of the new United Nations. The UN, too, was far from perfect. It spent too much time worrying about security interests of nation states and not enough time, as one member of the Depression delegation put it, trying to connect, quote, to the day-to-day -day activities and interests of the great mass of people. The UN needed to be made less political and more economic, cultural and social. And this insight really spoke to a wider problem that the, the groups of economists I've studied were occupied with, how to educate and interest members of the public, uh, both in the importance of economics, but also into the, as to the importance of international society. And this really remains, I think, a very pressing problem um, for us today um, when facing some of the biggest challenges of financial and global security. Thank you. Thanking Patricia enormously. I'm stepping into the 20s and 30s with some caution, uh, not, being, not being an economic historian myself. And I, too, found your book on the 20s and 30s enormously revealing. I've, as Max said, been working on this comparison where, again, I wasn't a 20s and 30s person. Uh, Peter Temin was. Uh, and what I'm trying to do in this talk is draw out some connections of the analysis that we assembled that ran across then and now. I'll entirely talk about Europe. Any remarks about the wider world will be it, it completely tangential. Uh, <clears throat> I want to start by reminding us of the importance of the growth process. We've lived in the last four or five years where everyone's worried about 
the need to return to growth. Uh, that's where I'm going to begin. And then I'm going to talk about what I do know about the history of economic thought as distinct from facts, Keynes on the impediments to growth. And then I'm going to use what we've learned from modern macroeconomics and Keynes to think about the impediments to growth in the 20s and 30s. Debt, adjustment difficulties, we'll talk about the gold standard, and the overall level of demand. And then again, talk about now in exactly the same framework. Uh, one of the most remarkable 12 pages ever written is chapter 2 of Keynes' Economic Consequences of the Peace. Uh, this is a, a quite, all words, very short, but it's a remarkable story of the growth process in Europe during the run-up to the First World War. Um, very rapid labour-saving sa labor technical progress. There's a wonderful paragraph of the rich gentleman lying in bed in mourning and all the things that he's able to consume uh, from his bedside. Uh, and rapid labour force growth, we think of that about this standard solo model ways as leading to a rapid rate of economic growth. Coupled, and part of this, was a high savings rate. As Keynes says, the psychology of society there, uh, was such that there grew around the non-consumption of the cake, instincts of puritanism. And so the cake increased, but to what end was not contemplated. Individuals were inclined not so much to abstain as to defer. This, as those in the audience will know, this is the Ramsey growth model. And it's knows, not everyone knows that the Ramsey growth model emerged after a dinner conversation between Keynes and Ramsey, in which Ramsey sent, uh, Keynes sent Ramsey away to write down what they'd just been talking about. And <laughs> that's, that's that model. It's a model of deferring and saving. But this was an international system within Europe. The short quote, the pace of Germany gave her neighbours an outlet for their products in exchange for which the enterprise of the German merchant supplied them with their chief requirements at a low price. Everybody living now will understand what that means about the relationship between Germany and Spain and Greece and Italy. Uh, and furthermore, it was a global system. Uh, the accumulative habits of Europe before the war were necessary condition uh, for the growth of the surplus capital goods accumulated by Europe, a substantial part of which were exported abroad, where its investment made possible the development of the new resources of food and materials and transport and enabled the old world to stake out a claim in the natural wealth and virgin potentialities of the new. I grew up in Melbourne, uh, which was uh, founded by a bunch of, uh, I was going to say bushrangers, but pretty nearly that, who drove out the Aboriginal population in southern Victoria in 1836. By 1880, that's to say 44 years later, Melbourne took 10% of all of Britain's exports. And the railways were built, and all around the empire this happened. This was a global system. And 
the, the third and fourth parts, not only was the Ramsey model there, but the Lewis model comes from that too. Cheap primary commodities enabling high profits and the accumulation of capital in the industrial centre of the world. Uh, so different from the Maynard Keynes we think about. Uh, and what the, and, and such an extraordinary story, this was meant to be a book complaining about the peace treaty, but it writes out what it, how, how the world was meant to work before the treaty messed it all up. Now, how does the treaty mess it all up? Well, it's about reparations. That's what the book's about. But then there are the, the next 10 years, and Keynes discovers that there is much else beyond reparations that needs to be thought about. And the treat, tract on monetary reform, the treatise on money, the economic consequences of Mr. Churchill, as a story of an extraordinarily imaginative, ma with, his, uh, with this growth model in his head, trying to figure out why it doesn't work. And uh, I was put onto this by Peter Temin, going to the Macmillan Committee, uh, to see Keynes at work 10 years later, trying to understand the way in which macroeconomics could stand as obstacles to this growth process. And there's a wonderful letter from Keynes to Lydia Lopakova in which he writes, they found my speech perplexing. I think that I did it all right, but it was unfamiliar and paradoxical. And the Macmillan Committee were quite right to find it perplexing. It was a complete mess. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's so fascinating to read about it. This is Britain in 1931 having returned to gold. Keynes, with this committee of 15 of the most high-powered people in uh, economic and financial people in Britain gets eight full days to expound his views. And what does he try and talk about? First of all, we, th we ask what happens in that psychology, remember the psychology of societies and savings leading to investment. What happens if investors are not prepared to make use of the available savings? Uh, he analyzes this problem in the light of Britain's unsuccessful return to the gold standard. Tight money, uh, make, of course it makes investment fall relative to saving. This is all new stuff. The quantity theory of money is at the back of their minds as macroeconomics. Distinguishing investment and saving. But so what happens? Investment falls relative to saving. Well, says Keynes, it causes unemployment and that that's meant to cause wages to fall and so bring about an adjustment of competitiveness, and that's how the gold standard's meant to work. But actually, wages don't fall, mm. and it doesn't work. Uh, and they said to him, well, then what happens? And he says, well, it causes unemployment, and there's a couple of wonderful paragraphs. And then, then he says, let me explain, and then he proceeds to explain how it causes unemployment in an economic model in which all resources are fully utilised and there's no unemployment. And this is no surprise that they found it perplexing. And the story of the next 18 months is of his Cambridge colleagues figuring out how to get Richard Kahn's multiplier into this. Shortage of aggregate demand. The process of real growth can be impeded by in inadequate monetary policy and uh, can be helped by th the gold standard and can be helped by fiscal intervention enormously controversial. Keynes gets crucified on 
fiscal crowding out by Hopkins at the Macmillan Committee, but by 1936, it's, it's there. Then, this is all meant to be about 1930 and the gold standards, so difficult, wage cuts are too slow. But Keynes doesn't advocate leaving the gold standard. Uh, he, it, his positive proposal, <laughs> guess what, are for ex demand expansion. And as Hopkins and others says, excuse me, this is an economy with an external difficulty uh, and you want to expand, right? And there's another letter to Lydia Lopakova saying they found this bit difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Challenging. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, he advocates protection and, and there's a, a complete riot. He has a fight with Lionel Robbins in another committee about that issue. And there's a discussion of why devaluation is better but he doesn't advocate leaving the gold standard for reasons which are obscure and probably internally contradictory. Then, so we fixed it, general theory in 1936. Then comes the war. Uh, then comes his heart attack, then the, the war. And, and then there's the run up to Bretton Woods. So you think, well, fix the gold standard. So what happens in the clearing union? It's still a mess. Uh, th th what he wants to propose is endless loans from an international agency which can create Bancor, running overdrafts. All the stuff we've been discussing in European adjustment over the last two, three years. But what about the process of... You'll see why I'm saying this. What about the process of adjustment? If wage and price adjustment is too slow and protection's ruled out, then <laughs> what? And there's, there's 18 months of... Of, of really difficult discussion about this. And then there emerges what we all teach to undergraduates as the swan diagram. If you want to have a situation in which your country is not forced to austerity when it's an external difficulty, if the country faces a situation where if it tries to keep full employment of demand, it's going to import too much, Capital flows very difficult to uh, after the 30s. Uh, what do you do? You need another instrument, and that instrument is currency depreciation. You can see why I'm saying all this uh, in, in what's coming. It, it's obvious, but it's worth laying this out. Um, if w devaluing the currency and, and, crucially, judging the degree of austerity by the amount necessary to release the resources which are demand for, for net exports as a result of the currency depreciation, then what you've got is an IMF program of 20 years later. It'll take time. You need to be able to borrow during the adjustment period, both officially and from the market. And to cut forward 20 years, IMF practice came to involve part of the lending coming from the fund with conditionality, we've talked about that uh, earlier, to make sure that the adjustment actually uh, takes place. Uh, we've talked about this earlier, Valerie Hertzberg's talk to us was all about the need for conditionality to ensure that adjustments actually do pla take place and this was the role of the fund just as it's the role of European institutions at the moment. So, what do we think of... This isn't Keynes as it's normally taught. This is a person with a growth theory in his head looking at macroeconomic impediments to that growth process. 
There's a wonderful obituary to Keynes by Schumpeter, which gives him B query plus. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, I'm Schumpeter, I worked on the theory of economic growth. This great man wrote 12 amazing pages and tried to make his life's work uh, sorting out these 12 pages, and all he produces is this silly short-run macroeconomic model. It's sad, isn't it? <laughs> it's a wonderful obituary. <laughs> um, and, but the, the picture is there. Now let's just look, using that picture, at the breakdown in the 20s and 30s, which he didn't understand in 1930, but he nearly understood by 1944 and his friends and colleagues worked, worked out. And, and Now let's go back with that to your book on the gold standard, your book on the, uh, the uh, depression in Europe in the, in the 20s. Start with reparations, where Keynes began a crucial impediment to growth. How much they caused the German in hi hyperinflation is, I'm not an economic historian, I, there's been much discussion of this. Whether it was caused by the, the hyperinflation, caused by the need to finance the reparation payments, or whether the link was a more indirect one. Nevertheless, with a burden outstanding, monetary and fiscal discipline was very difficult to institute. Then comes the Dawes plan. Uh, Without dealing with the liability, uh, scheduling payments, uh, and, and, and within this schedule, pay, lending could be resumed and the aim of an ultimate payment. And as you talked about earlier, Patricia, uh, we, we have a, a period of four or five years of really rapid growth financed by borrowing. Comes to an end in 2028, 20, 29 uh, um, and it comes to an end under the shadow of a lack of clarity about how the reparations would be dealt with. And Bruni, wonderful pronouncement in 31 that maybe they won't be paid, predates the abandonment of the gold standard after a currency crisis, something like a month between that statement and the ab abandonment. And, and uh, my bottom line, there's some similarity that connects then and now uh, that I want to draw out. Secondly, this macroeconomic system was one with adjustment constraints. It's very hard to think about the 1920s. Uh, economists, about the best they can do is two-country worlds. This is a four-country world, Britain, France, Germany, and the US. Uh, one by one, Britain has the problems that Keynes faced at the Macmillan Committee, Germany had returned to gold. I'm, I'm not quite clear about this, but I think the value was uncompetitive uh, and an overvalued exchange rate with a reparations burden. France returned at a competitive rate and the US was in a competitive position. Now, I, I'd like to come to your remarks about this. The gold standard could have worked well, just ask yourself how. Uh, think about Keynes saying Britain's overvalued, uh, that's to say uncompetitive, and the others are too competitive. What could have worked, but you know, teach undergraduates that, that you need a period of adjustment. 
how long, how quickly do you expect that adjustment to, 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 to work? And crucially, do you expect the surplus countries to play a useful role in that yeah. adjustment process? Uh, Britain, Keynes talking about nowhere in history could we get, uh, is there evidence that we could get the necessary fall in wages and prices in Britain? That's the Macmillan Committee. Where in history is an allowance of policy to have the upward movement? France sterilises and doesn't allow this to happen. Now, uh, you're nodding, uh, and let me just ask you, the gold standard could have worked. Does that mean that the US should have run much looser monetary policy during the great boom that led to 1929? No, no. Uh, 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 Ah, but... But from 26 onward, what I'm trying to draw attention to is this is a fixed exchange rate system with uncompetitive sh positions, asymmetric shocks, boisterous economy in America, all the 20s, and the inability... The tw 1928 is full of discussions between Britain and the US in which the British plead with the Americans not to raise the interest rate. Yeah. And, and, and we get the great boom in 29 as a result. Fixed exchange rate systems are very difficult to bring about. Monetary policy is wrong when, and furthermore, the adjustment of relative costs and prices is difficult. Um, and thirdly, this was a system in which global aggregate demand wasn't well managed. Um, not just a relative adjustment, but absolute global demand inadequate. Uh, aggregate costs and prices in the system were wrong. The great inflation after the First War had... I don't know the evidence of this, uh, but the, it does seem... Not with uh, too many double negatives. It does seem that there wasn't enough gold around for the new higher world level of prices. Uh, making that claim strongly is difficult because there were... Uh, there was withdrawal of gold, as you've described, from circulation. Nevertheless, even had there not been, this was a system in which the quantity of money had been, had that done to it by the post-war inflation, which had been caused by features that you so well described. Um, then you stick on top of this uh, the drying up of the loans to Germany by 1928, which had begun under the Dawes plan, they further dampened demand. Then you have the German reparations difficulty, and then you have the currency crisis, Germany and Britain, and then crucially, uh, you have the wrong response in the US, tight money at that stage to prevent the US losing gold rather than loose response. This is a very difficult system to run when there are asymmetric shocks. So to summarise, this system caused, and you'll see why this summary is here, given what I'm going to say about where we are now, this system caused deficit countries to deflate since they couldn't devalue, and it didn't ensure that surplus countries correspondingly uh, spent a lot. It made the relative competitiveness position of countries difficult to default, and over, over all this, hang a stock, of, a stock of debt which made investment risky. 
growth prospects leading to an inadequate level of demand were made worse by the adjustment mechanism and by the overhang of debt. Now let's go f fast forward from that story to the world where we are now. <coughs> Until 2008, the establishment of the euro was very successful. High growth rates, high savings in the north, and rapid savings in the south. Go back to Keynes, as I was thinking about this, this European growth model in the first decade of European Monetary Union looks not dissimilar to the story of Europe before the First World War. The great vision so enthusiastically embraced, an emerging market all around the south of Europe, high savings in the north, international system, and part of a global system. That's Keynes writing in 1929, and it's a story of the model of the understanding of what this great new project in Europe was going to do, led by Chancellor Cole, whose huge ambition was to reintegrate Europe after the uh, experience. Uh, and I'm on the wrong page. I'm trying to be there. Um, The, the area appeared to be cushioned against shocks and exchange rate real... Of course, they're a thing of the past. Uh, let's ask ourselves what this... The questions... Keynes didn't ask himself, didn't know how to in 1929... Uh, in 1919, what was required to make that story before the First World War work. Mm. We now know so much more macroeconomics. We can ask what was required to make this story in the European Monetary Union work. Wages and prices need to be set in the knowledge that each country needs to remain sufficiently competitive. And there's some remarkably prescient speeches about this by Otmar Issing, who was very sceptical about whether the institutional arrangements for doing this in Germany were, I'm putting this back to front, whether Southern Europe was compatible with the institutional arrangements for doing this in Germany. Uh, there are some marvellous, uh, now I'll come to this at the bottom of the page. Of course, uh, external balance isn't needed each period, but each region requires to be solvent in the long run, just as Texas does and just as um, Scotland still does within, within Britain. But within that solvency of the, of, of the peripheral regions, there was an ambition of the integration of credit markets, risk premium would disappear, joining the common currency area, and, and the crucial discipline mechanism put in place was the Stability and Growth Pact to prevent public disorder from destroying this, this integration. And there are some very, it's not just Altmar Issing, it's my colleagues in the macroeconomics profession who wrote papers with forward-looking wage and price setters who would understand the world they were in and that discipline would cause them to set wages and prices appropriately. And there are forward-looking like all modern macroeconomics, forward-looking consumers, and they understand the budget constraint, and they don't spend too much. And 
uh, and, and then you stick in on top of that the sti Stability and Growth Pact, and that's, that's a, a well-functioning system, you think. And my profession thought that, and the political optimists in Europe thought that. And then what happened? Well, this is what happened. Though, and that's a picture that's so familiar to all of you that I just need to flash it for you to remember it. There's, and it only goes up to 2008 when the crisis began. There's unit labour costs in Germany, and there's Ireland at the top and Spain, and Greece isn't on this picture. It's right up, up the top somewhere. Uh, and this is a result of boom in the south and austerity in the north. Germany joined the Monetary Union in an uncompetitive position and proceeded to do ten very admirable years of, of, of austerity. Um, they'd, guess what, that was the savings, and that looks just like the savings that Keynes began his story about, with. And in the South, there's huge opportunity for, for investment, mm -hmm. and uh, housing boom in Spain and Ireland, but all sorts of other stuff emerging markets, uh, but that takes place now, now we're trying to do what Keynes couldn't do in 1930, but began to be able to do in 1936 and 1944, understand the macroeconomics of what went wrong. First of all, if you're integrating credit markets uh, in this wonderful way, the integration of credit markets, you certainly haven't got a gold standard constraint operating to discipline the peripheral regions. So then you ask, uh, how does monetary policy work? It goes the other way. Everyone has a common interest rate. There's a boom in the south, inflation, real interest rates fall. That augments the boom. And that's uh, Sir Alan Walter's reason for Britain not joining the European monetary system long, long, long ago. Alan Walters understood this. Um, and, and, and there's a also an absence of any fiscal constraint on this process because of the Stability and Growth Pact. Max kept on talking to me during this period about how uh, in the rapidly growing South fiscal revenues were abnormally strong, uh, not unlike Britain, but much more so. And in the face of those strong fiscal revenues, there was no discipline on, from fiscal policy on this boom in the South, the boom which created that. Uh, as that interpolation in small type says, a forward-looking private sector would understand this. And my profession, full of people who think that ma the macroeconomy is full of forward-looking rational expectations, people wrote models about how this stuff is stable. Uh, and <laughs> that's what happened. Now, this also, of course, created current account imbalances. That's the short story. Now, providing that the South is is solvent, well, there we are back at the beginning, price and wage setting decisions and expenditure decisions thought to be stabilising. Well, that's just, of course that's what happens in an emerging market economy. 
an emerging market eco economy has got lots of investment opportunities and you borrow and invest and grow and, and, and that's wonderful. And so the, my colleague's idea was that this would <coughs> gradually close up again and that's cool. Um, but you can ask, now, now here is the, the, here's the really substantive point that I want to make here. That could have been right, uh, it, just like the gold standard could have worked. Um, but just like the gold standard was, I put this better than when writing these sl slides, just like the gold standard was fragile with identified reasons, this was fragile too. Now, when you were designing European Monetary Union, I remember John Williamson saying to me, you know, German reunification was the last asymmetric shock. This is going to be manageable from now on. And, and then you impose on this the worst macroeconomic crisis since the 19, late 1920s. And you've now got a fragile system without adjustment mechanisms. So let's now just ask what happens in this fragile adjustment m mechanism with, and use the same three categories, um, um, debt, <coughs> adjustment mechanisms, and the level of macroeconomic demand. Uh, risk premium in the south fell to zero, way to the left of here, just like ha had been hoped. Then from, this is the Greek crisis there, Greece not on the slide, but you see the risk premium rising and, it, and this ends uh, at the end of 2011, so it's a, it, it's a, a year old. Uh, and these risk premium, <coughs> there's a monetary union in which the great play is low risk premium and investment in the south of the savings in the north. Well, what happens? You get sovereign risk premium, the fear that the lack of competitiveness, you ask a country that's as uncompetitive as that, what's the prospect for tax revenues? And it's not good. Uh, secondly, there begins by 2011 to be a country risk premium. Why? Uh, 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 <coughs> Uh, there's a misprint in that slide. Fear, during lack of, fear that given the lack of competitiveness, uh, the country won't become competitive enough in the end to be able to serve its international debt. And there's a financial risk premium that the banks were insolvent given the second problem. And these risk premium became interrelated. I've lost my page. Back I go. Uh, so there is <laughs> there's, the, there's, the, there's debt and look at adjustment difficulties in the face of this there is a cooperative solution just like there could have been a gold standard solution or we could see a slide into sovereign default and euro breakup mirroring quite closely what happened in the 1930s. No one wanted, no, Maynard Keynes in, at the Macmillan Committee, not even advocating leaving yeah. the gold standards. This is a slide into something that no one 
contemplated as part of policy design. Or we could try and muddle on uh, with very little debt forgiveness, with austerity and with probably 10 years of astronomically high unemployment, uh, taking us into risk territory that none of us know how to say anything much about. What does the cooperative solution require? That's a rather bold statement at the top of that page, and I think I should withdraw it. That here's a, some thoughts about what a cooperative solution requires. It, a mixture of further lending, and, and, and just ask yourself, what, where are we? Well, what was learned from the 1920s and 1931 in the setting up of Bretton Woods, the centre of the piece, you need adjustable real exchange rates in order to correct that problem. And you can't have adjustable nominal exchange rates, so the adjustment process is an order of magnitude more difficult. Mm. The Asia crisis, Thailand, uh, Korea, Malaysia, slightly different, Indonesia, um, crisis for a year, the worst crisis in history. Some of us thought for about three weeks that it was going to be the Great Depression again. And within a year and a half, there's the most wonderful process of export-led growth. How they all devalue by 35% and get on with it and, and, and do severe austerity. And it's the mixture of those two things. So we can't do that. So what have we got to do? We need expenditure switching. Well, how do you do that? Uh, southern goods have to become much cheaper relative to goods in the north. It's difficult and slow in a monetary union. And the, the, you ask yourself, Keynes thought that 10% overvaluation of sterling in 1931 was unfixable. We're talking numbers 30% in that diagram. And everyone says, well, you know, hang on. And that's why I wrote 10 years. This is, now people are talking, talking about 5, 10% adjustment of, of real wages. Uh, but we're looking at much more required. We've just got to go on doing it much easier if there's more inflation in the north. Yep. Secondly, not just austerity in the south, but more expenditure in the north. In, in disregard of the Stability and Growth Pact, ruled out by the rules, imposed on the system by the well, I was going to say well-meaning, well thought out, Stability and Growth Pact designed to work in, in uh, favourable circumstances. And the, the only way that that story about more fiscal looseness in the North can be avoided is either the two ways. One, to spend 10 years adjusting, or secondly, to do it by monetary policy and expand by running a surplus relative to the rest of the world. And, and I don't want to go there in this discussion, but that creates its own problems given the global difficulties that we've got. Mm. Uh, so let's just take the first two objectives. Growth can't resume without both of these first two being achieved. Then what can we say about the adjustment? It'll take less time the more that Germany agrees to a greater expansion of German demand and to a higher inflation in Germany. That 
there we are back to the gold standard. In 1931, if the US had, had behaved according to the rules, this might have been savable if, it, at that crucial in moment. France, in France. And France earlier in 1926. Yeah. Uh, but if it's a 10-year period, you work out how you're going to correct this 30% relative cost difference. Debts will grow and debt and the debt write-down issue will become more demanding the longer time that adjustment takes. The, how much write-down? It'll depend on the capacity to pay and on who ends up bearing the costs of the write-down. Issues to deal with include the recapitalization of the ECB to deal with write-down of the ECB's assets and the extent to which lengthening of loans can stand in for formal debt write-downs in the way that happened this week, uh, which didn't satisfy many people uh, other than more delay. So we go right back to the beginning. There is an underlying a growth agenda. This project of develop developing the South with the savings of the North is a wonderful project, just like the late 19th century was. Just like after the First World War, the agenda has been impeded by macroeconomic constraints. And there you can, let, let's put it the, the following way, there the overhang on top of the bad adjustment process was debts created by war, here, the overhang on top of the growth mm -hmm. uh, adjustment process is growth uh, is debts created by ten years in which a policy wasn't properly understood. War leads to problems one way; mismanaged policy leads to problems sixty years later. Three parts of the solution, which I've described, and all of these need to be brought about for growth to be resumed. Slow adjustment, as we've all said, carries further risks of default and crisis. And in one sentence, the story about cooperation that you were talking about in the whole last part of your talk, both to preserve political stability in the South and, Valerie, uh, with reference to our discussion earlier, to reassure ordinary Germans that this is only a one-off move rather than the long-run transfer union, which involves an understanding about how this is dealing with a problem that the institutions won't, or won't ever permit to happen again, will try and prevent happening again. But this is not a permanent bailout solution. And the final remark that deals with your past final words this sort of transfer one-off didn't happen after World War I, but the Marshall Plan and other mm -hmm. security arrangements did happen after World War II and were part of why that was so different. This needs leadership as well as the technical solutions on this, on this page. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.